Locked away in attics, basements, and dark corners across the world are stories of beings and beasts that hide in the night. These are those stories. This is the Sleepless in Suburbia podcast. I'm Brooke, case manager for our team, and this is the audio recap for case 117, The Kruger Farm. Now, before we unpack this week's case, I want to take just a moment to say thank you for everyone who's taken the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcast. It's a huge help. And if you haven't rated and reviewed us on Apple Podcast yet, and you like listening to our haunted cases, please take just a couple of seconds and give us a rate and review. It's really helpful in getting our cases out there to more people. Okay, now back to case 117. I received the following text from my friend Millie. Our sons play hockey together. She said, Brooke, I just heard that people are talking about that Razor Hand Kruger character being based off of a real person. I've known this legend since I was a kid. The Freddy inspiration is based on a guy in my hometown. Would you ladies want to research and spit some gruesome, bone-chilling craziness on your podcast? Uh, yes. Yes, Millie, we absolutely would. How many seasons into hockey mom life are we? And you're just now telling me you have ties to arguably one of the best horror characters in the biz, I text back. Is there such thing as six degrees of separation with a horror character like there is with Kevin Bacon? Property details. Currently, Kyle Langsford owns the property. He bought it in 2012. All original buildings were demolished and replaced by a log cabin-looking manufactured home, a small barn, and a chicken coop shaped like a perfect replica of the White House. The cabin home and White House chicken coop sit near the creek on the east side of the property. Along the creek are large cinder blocks, tossed there after the demolition of an old silo. The barn sits between two cornfields towards the west. Team Update I was honestly surprised that everyone wanted to go on this investigation. Even Miss Hate Scary Movies with the Passion of a Thousand Sons Ford joined us. I couldn't help but wonder if the reason for all hands on deck was that no one wanted to be left behind. You know, the old safety and numbers logic? Laughter is still waking Prue up at night and lingering through dawn. The rest of the humans in her house, David and her bonus kiddo Milo, are sleeping soundly. Knox, their rescue pity mix, seems to sense something isn't as it should be. He used to sleep sandwiched between Prue and David, but now he's on the floor, staring out of the window on Prue's side of the bed. Prue woke up to Knox growling, nose pressed to the glass last week. Flipping the blankets, Prue slid out of bed when she heard the giggling. She hopped back in bed like the floor had shocked her when she stepped on it. Listening to the growling and giggling continue, after several minutes, Knox lay down, and Prue laid staring at the window watching the sun come up. Lark is back in her dorm room, though she accidentally dozes off, on our sofa a couple of times a week while watching Ghost Adventures with me at night. Honestly, I like having her there. Even though the ominous feeling that lingered over me when we got back from Madison has mostly dissipated, My mama bear instinct is so strong with Lark. I know she's 20, but I still see that little girl with a sloppy ponytail destroying my bookshelves, looking for just one more Goosebumps book she hasn't read yet. If those things are going to mess with her, I want her with me. 
so she's not facing them alone. Over the weekend, Ford walked out to her car around 9 p.m. to grab her laptop charger. Walking from her garage, she noticed a shadow lingering by the driver's side of her car. It was about three feet tall and completely unmoving. Ford rushed back through the garage, hitting the button to close the door behind her, with the shadow figure watching her as the garage door closed painfully slow. She texted Claire, who lived the closest, to do a paranormal drive-by. You know, where you drive past and see if you can spot said spooky happening? Ten minutes later, a knock at Ford's front door made her jump. Opening it, she gasped. Claire, in her purple monkey pajama set, was holding a blonde, inflatable blow-up doll. With a sign duct-taped to it that said, You suck. Not a sinister black-eyed kid, but just another prank from her brothers and sisters. Claire has spent a lot of time with Lowe, working through some possible leads from the Wyndham's West Bank hideaway case. If you haven't listened to that case yet, it's number 115. They think they found an explanation for the black-eyed kids, and unfortunately, it's worse than we imagined. It's a lot to get into here inside of Case 117's recap, so we'll compile an update in an upcoming episode. Overall, we're all just trying to get back to normal but doing so with an uneasy cloud that hasn't completely faded away yet. Historical Society Research and the Legend of Alfred Hewling Alfred Hewling was born February 2, 1945, to Marie and Clarence Hewling. Clarence worked two jobs to support his young family, and Marie stayed at home with Alfred. In April 1946, the couple welcomed their second child, Casey Randall Hewling. Shortly after Casey was born, Marie began drinking. As the boys grew up, Marie's drinking worsened, fueling violent beatings on both the boys. One particular beating with some sort of a blunt object was so brutal, it resulted in a traumatic brain injury that led to epilepsy. Alfred was nine years old. In the fall of 1955, Casey went to live with relatives who needed help on their cattle farm. They didn't want Alfred because they felt his epilepsy would be more of a hindrance than a help. Marie's rage heightened after Casey left, with Alfred being the sole outlet. On his 11th birthday, his mother passed out on the couch from a bender. Alfred packed a knapsack and ran away from home. After several days of walking, scrounging for food in trash cans, Alfred sought refuge from a bitter February snowstorm in a barn. Just before dawn, a woman entered the barn to slop pigs, finding Alfred asleep on a pile of hay. Alfred explained he'd run away from home, that his mother was a complete terror, and that he'd work if she'd let him sleep in the barn. Mr. and Mrs. Richards did just that, offering Alfred a place to live and food to eat as long as he helped around the farm and attended school. The Richards were kind to Alfred, treating him like a son, And by all accounts, publicly, he excelled. On the farm, Alfred worked hard learning the day-to-day operations of a pig farm. At school, Alfred was an above-average student, liked by teachers and his classmates. But behind closed doors and masked by the shadow of night, Alfred morphed into a different person. When one of the barn cats had kittens, trigger warning here, guys, he killed and mutilated one of the poor kittens in the woods and piglets would go missing, 
assumed to have escaped from pins, but they'd met the same fate as that first kitten. The animal abuse continued, and so did Alfred's secret behavior. Alfred began following girls home from school, hiding outside their homes, watching them through windows. That progressed into breaking into the girls' homes and stealing trinkets from their rooms, like hairbrushes, underwear, and lip gloss. His behavior hit a boiling point when he was 19. A 15-year-old girl woke to Alfred standing over her with a large pair of shears. Before she could scream, he clasped his hand over her mouth, promising he wouldn't hurt her if she remained quiet. He spoke softly to her, caressing the side of her face with the shear blades, causing a long but shallow nick down the side of her cheek, before cutting a lock of her blonde hair. She watched him climb out her window, but not before he turned back to her, putting the shears to his lips and whispering, Shh. Rumors spread throughout the town that Alfred had attacked a girl in the middle of the night, but before police could pick him up for questioning, he was gone. Alfred spent the next three-ish years traveling from small town to small town, working odd jobs on farms, saving every penny he earned. It's possible to somewhat connect the dots of where he was during that time by tracking police reports that are all eerily similar. All cases are unsolved, and the victimology is the same, always involving girls with blonde or very light brown hair between the ages of 14 and 16. A man came through an open door or window with large shears. He's believed to watch them sleep for some time while going through their belongings, likely taking a memento, before waking them to the sound of the shears slicing together. When the girls awake, they're told to be quiet or he'll kill them and their family. He then spends time caressing their faces with the blades, always drawing blood, before cutting their hair and fleeing through a window. In all, Prue was able to find 12 similar cases dotted across the Midwest and southern parts of the United States. We are assuming Alfred's whereabouts across the United States during that three-ish year period, but we know he moved to Milton in the fall of 1967, purchasing a 20-acre property in September of that year. On the property was a rundown farmhouse desperately in need of repair, a crumbling silo, a sty and curtain barn, both in working condition, and a creek running along one edge of the property. Alfred immediately began raising pigs in the barns, earning a living selling pigs to local butcher shops, and working part-time as a maintenance employee for the Milton High School. This is where the legend of Alfred Hewling takes form. The high school janitorial position provided the perfect hunting ground for Hewling. He began taking particular interest in upperclassmen young women with shoulder-length blonde hair. Sandy Walton went missing January 17, 1968, while walking home from school. But she was found January 19, 1968, alive. While taking a shortcut on her way home from school, she heard what sounded like footsteps behind her. She turned, seeing no one. But before she could continue walking, something hit her on the side of the head. When she woke up, she was tied to a wood furnace in a barn she didn't recognize. The room was dark, and she couldn't see much around her, but could hear someone walking. A man spoke, asking her to stay calm 
and that he would let her go. He had a new tool he wanted her to test out. From the darkness, a hand reached towards her, wearing what she called a clawed glove. The clawed gloved hand stroked her face, hair, arms, leaving bleeding shallow cuts from her head down to her hands. The man, or who she thought was a man by his low, soft voice, came to her the next night, adding to the cuts and cutting more of her hair before hitting her over the head with an object. When she awoke this time, she was on the path of her shortcut, almost in the exact location where she was taken. When she arrived home, her parents and the police greeted her. They'd been looking for her since the 17th. She wasn't able to ID her abductor, but gave a detailed description of the clawed glove. Over the next five months, seven girls went missing from Milton High School. Lisa Jackson, Susan Lopes, Karen Davis, Linda Harris, Patricia Young, Donna Green, and Tammy King. All sophomores and juniors at Milton, all blonde, and all have never had their remains discovered. There was one more girl, the ninth victim of this crazed clawed man attacker, Julie Campbell. This is her story. Julie Campbell was hit over the head while walking her dog around a park in broad daylight. The family found the dog at the park, leash still attached. Julie, nowhere in sight. Julie awoke on a dirt floor, tied with rope to a furnace. The room was dark, except for the low glow of a kerosene lamp that only provided the faintest light. A man spoke, calling her beautiful, while his clawed hand left cuts down her arms and legs. As the night went on, him talking with her like they were having a casual chat, the cuts got deeper, continuing until the sun began to rise. Then he left. And when he left, she went to work, rubbing the rope against the edge of the furnace, slowly cutting her way through her restraints. She had just wiggled a hand free when she heard steps approaching her through the barn. She laid still, pretending to be asleep as he lit the lamp. Seeing his back was to her, she lunged, grabbing the lamp. As he turned, she bashed the lit kerosene lamp into his face and ran. Running into the woods, she spotted the North Star and followed it through the darkness until she came across a house. Banging on the door until an elderly couple thankfully was at home and let her in, calling the police. By the time police arrived at Hewling's farm, Alfred was gone. On the property, the police found the claw glove. It was a thing of Hewling's creation. The glove itself was a tan leather workman glove, which was pretty standard in every hardware store and worksite across the country. Four-inch, fine-edged stainless steel paring knife blades were sewn into each finger of the glove, protruding from the end of each finger like aggressive dagger cat claws. And Velcro was sewn into the wrist to help keep the glove in place. After his disappearance, authorities searched the property for clues, finding very few, but very incriminating, items. Lined up on the windowsill by his bed were 21 bundles of blonde hair tied together with twine. Possibly 21 girls had suffered at his hand. In the curtain barn, authorities found six human teeth and a bracelet 
with a golden heart charm. The letter S in script on the charm, this was believed to belong to Susan Lopes. Police quickly realized the barn full of pigs were likely involved in the girls' disappearances. One career had given Hewling access to his victims. His other allowed him ease in disposing of their bodies. Pigs are the perfect murder accomplice. Think about that the next time you see someone with a pet pig. Pigs' digestive systems can break down carbs and proteins, making them human tissue disposal machines. Nursing sows, mother pigs, are the most ravenous eaters, consuming 10 to 14 pounds of food, or human remains, in one sitting, meaning a 150-pound person needs just one feeding and around 15 sows to vanish. Prue found a story on Newsweek's website written by Callum Patton about a Russian woman who suffered an epileptic seizure while feeding her pigs. She was eaten alive by the pigs as she lay there still alive, unable to move. By the time her husband found her, the pigs had eaten her shoulder, ear, and face. Cause of death? Blood loss. Meaning she was alive when the pigs started chowing down. In short, pigs are freaking terrifying. Hewling knew the pig's carnivorous nature, so the sty and curtain barn became the dumping ground for his victims. In total, authorities believe after their murders, the pigs consumed seven young women. For about a month, Milton was quiet, a town coming together, mourning, rallying around the families of those of the lost and of the survivors, until an evening when a rattling began at the Campbell's back door. Julie heard the noise before her parents, retrieving her father's gun from a cigar box on the top shelf in a hall closet. The side door into the kitchen opened, and Julie watched a man with a red and navy striped shirt, baseball cap, and horribly burned face enter. She fired two shots, hitting Alfred Hewling in the chest. He died before the police arrived. After his death, the people of Milton did not want a monster buried in the town cemetery. So Alfred Hewling was buried on the edge of his property under a large oak. Within days of Hewling's burial, leaves on the oak began to yellow. In just over a week, the yellow leaves browned, littering the bare earth above his grave. Two months later, the once healthy oak was decaying. Bark dried to a sickening black, branches now twisted and gnarled or broken off entirely, locals dubbed it the Devil's Tree. The town believed that Hewling's evil poisoned the earth around his final resting place, killing the grass. Over 50 years later, the ground is still bare, and children whisper urban legends about the tree, daring one another to sneak onto the property to touch the evil remains of a vile man. As the urban legend goes, if you touch the tree, Alfred can access your dreams, torturing you any time you drift off to sleep. Over the years, several children have claimed to have been visited by Alfred in their sleep after touching Devil's Tree. Millie's friend, we'll call her Ellen, touched Devil's Tree the summer of 1989. She was 10 years old. Ellen agreed to chat with us about her experience, but only over the phone and only if we promise not to use her real name. Here's my call with Ellen. Thank you so much for taking the time to connect today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. 
Mel said you promised not to share specifics about me. You know, not use my name and stuff, right? Absolutely. We'll call you Ellen, okay? Oh, um, sure. Whenever you're ready, can you tell me what happened to you in 1989? Back then, my mama worked the day shift at the county hospital as an RN. So our neighbor, Becky, babysat. One afternoon, her boyfriend stopped by. While they watched Beetlejuice on video, I had my bike to meet my friends. Oh, great movie. What? Beetlejuice. It's a really great movie. I love Michael Keaton. Oh, I've never seen it. Anyway, I don't remember who suggested it. But we ended up on the old hurling farm standing around Devil Street. At first, we just dared each other to climb over the chain loop fence around the tree. We all took turns climbing over. As soon as our feet touched the dirt inside the fence, we scrambled right back out. There's a fence around the tree? Yeah. It's been there for as long as I can remember. We should have just gone home then or gone to Mr. Twisty's for ice cream like we planned, but instead, Carly dared someone to touch the tree. No one wanted to at first. But then she said if someone touched the tree, she'd give him her hanging tough singles tape. In KOTB? Right, yeah. New kids on the block. I loved them back then, but no one would let me bite her taste because I'm not spending money for an album with that boy with the rat tail on. I figured a quick freak out, and I'd spend the rest of my summer listening to Hanging Tough while Mama worked. It was an idiotic idea. I hopped the fence, smacked the tree, and bolted back to my friends. Carly pulled the cassette single out of her backpack, and that was that. Did you feel anything? Notice anything weird when you touched the tree? Not at all. It felt like a typical tree bark. We headed home after that. I was back before the movie even finished. Becky never knew I was gone. That night, I listened to Hanging Up over and over again on my Walkman. Ah, okay. And no nightmares? Not that night. The next night it started. Fell asleep on the couch watching her friend Roger Rabbit. I woke up to someone calling my name. As I sat up on the couch, I heard this scratching sound. Then I figure it walked out of the wall next to the TV. It was a man, face scarred beyond recognition, his eyes unnaturally blue, and knives for fingers. What did you do? for my mom, which made him laugh. She can't hear you in here, Ellen. He said, walking closer to me, leaning in. I could feel his hot breath against my face when he said, In here, you're mine. Oh, that sounds terrifying. It was worse than terrifying. Every night he was there, waiting for me to fall asleep, scratching me with his knife finger, threatening to feed me to the pigs. It was awful. I'd wake up with faint, red, welt scratches all over my body. I was exhausted. My grades were falling. My mom got so worried she sent me to church camp for the rest of the summer for what she called a mental reset. Did it help? Yeah. 
second night there, I, I decided to get baptized in the lake. The night was the first night in weeks he hadn't been hiding, waiting for me. I haven't seen him since the night before I was baptized. Do you believe touching the tree invited healing into your dreams? I wish they'd burn that damn tree down. There's too many of us marked by him from beyond the grave. I thanked Ellen for her time and reported to the group, asking Prue to look further into the claims of nightmares stemming from touching the devil's tree. On-site interview recap and encounters. Kyle was helpful enough to let us traipse across his property for our investigation. I think it also helped that he's been Millie's brother Jet's best friend since the second grade. Wandering towards the Devil's Tree, the property was pretty nondescript. Insert any farmland you've probably ever seen here until we got to the ugly tree blocked off by a rusted chain-length fence. The bark was dark brown almost blackened with a thick substance bubbling from the cracks. The twisted branches were utterly bare, as was the ground the entire perimeter around the tree. Outside of the fence, we stood in lush, slightly overgrown grass up to our ankles, but just inside the fence, bare dirt. It was hard to imagine. This tree was at the center of dozens of children's accounts of debilitating nightmares. Prue hardly had to try to unearth account after account of kids terrorized after touching the tree. The stories were so similar and came from across the country as people connected on blog posts, social media groups, and Reddit feeds. A night or two after touching the tree, a burned man in a striped shirt would appear inside their dreams. Night after night, he stalked them as they ran, hunted them where they hid, and cut them. Here are a few accounts of paranormal fallout from touching the devil's tree. This experience is from Laura P. She wrote, When I was 14, a group of us snuck to the devil's tree. A boy I liked was part of the group, and he dared me to touch the tree with him. I didn't want to look lame in front of him, so I climbed over the fence and hugged the tree. Yep, hugged it, laughing about how stupid the entire thing was. Just before I pulled away, I felt something sharp graze my cheek. Touching the stinging cut, there was blood. I brushed it off as nothing. The next night, the entire time I was asleep, I ran from claw hand. I woke up with scrapes all over my arms. I fell asleep the following night, and there he was again, with his burnt-up face and dagger phalanges. He'd say things like, "'Won't you play with me, Laura?' Laura, let me smell your pretty hair. And you're mine at night, princess girl. I told my grandmother about the nightmares, and she gave me her prayer beads to wear. The first night I slept with him, Clawhand was in my dream, but he was fuzzy. I don't know, weak maybe? But he couldn't hurt me. He just watched. So I began wearing the prayer beads and sitting on my bed saying a prayer of protection to the universe 108 times, one time for each bead, before bed. After four days, he was nowhere to be found in my dreams. I still use the prayer beads and say my protection prayer 108 times each day just to make sure he doesn't come back. Here's Callie's experience. Quote, Touching that tree was the dumbest thing I've ever done. When he walked into my dream, which is exactly what he did, cutting through the fabric of my mind, 
He was captivating, like a dangerous animal at the zoo that you lean up against the glass to watch, not realizing it's stalking you, and your only protection is the plexiglass. In the dream, there was no plexiglass barricade. At first, I watched him as he ripped through the wall in my bedroom, shredding my favorite Lance Bass poster. His face looked melted. Scars rippled from his forehead down across his nose and mouth, bubbling in a mound on top of his chin. I can still hear his voice the first time he spoke. My, my, aren't you a pretty one? Would you like to play? Sitting up, I watched him stroll towards me, casual, like he'd done it a million times. Won't you play with me? When I didn't respond, his melted lips pulled up into a crooked grin, revealing jagged yellow teeth. Run, he hissed. I leapt off my bed and spent the rest of the night barely dodging his sword fingers. Right before I woke up, he grabbed my leg, cutting it deep. When I woke up, there was a scratch on my leg that I hadn't had before. I woke my mom up crying, telling her everything. She'd grown up in Milton, so I knew she'd know what to do. She looked, I don't know, scared. She grabbed her Star of David necklace from her nightstand and clasped it around my neck, mumbling something in Hebrew. Later that day, before I went to bed, my mom came into my room with a piece of paper, a prayer written in Hebrew that my bubby had written for me. I was to say that prayer each night before bed. I'm 36 years old now, and I keep that prayer in the top drawer of my nightstand, still repeating the words each night before bed. I only saw his melted face once. I still have a red scar down my leg that I can't explain. And sometimes at night, it feels like someone is watching me. If you find yourself in Milton, don't touch that freaking tree. The last encounter is from Nat. She wrote, He popped into my dreams two days after I touched the devil's tree. The first night, he was actually really, really nice. From my bed, I watched him walk into my room from the hall and sit beside me on the bed. Are you scared of me? He asked drumming his knife fingers on my bed. I told him I wasn't sure if I was, to which he replied, Oh, Nat, but you should be. Don't you know who I am? Everyone in Milton knew who he was. That's how night one went, just talking. The second night, he locked me in my closet. After a few minutes, he sent things I was most afraid of under the door, spiders, June bugs, and wasps. I woke up the next morning with a nasty spider bite on my cheek. The abuse in my dreams continued. There was a night he chased me through the rain in a cornfield, lashing out his clawed hand at me from the corn. I woke up with my arms and sides bleeding. The insect bites and cuts went on for weeks. I googled a spiritual healer and drove three towns over to meet with her. She performed a blessing and clearing on me, then sent me home with a blessed crystal. No more insects or attacks. I haven't seen the man since. Girls. All of these encounters were girls. Well, women now. But girls when it happened, even in the afterlife, this evil spirit was a total creep. Investigation recap. Kyle left the property at dusk, heading to spend the evening fishing with Jet and some of his other buddies. We didn't set up much equipment, instead deciding to walk the property together, rolling digital audio and video. Our single, rather light, research pack included 
five digital recorders, digital camera, full spectrum video camera, complete first aid kit, six flashlights, and Avon Skin So Soft Bug Guard. These are our experiences. The night was muggy with little to no breeze. It was going to be a long night completely outside. We decided with Kyle's home being new to the property, it was unlikely to have paranormal activity. He hadn't experienced anything since moving in. Lark suggested we start by the water. Flowing water can work as a conduit, helping spirits communicate easier, making it the perfect place to start our investigation for the evening. We started walking along the stream's water edge, where the blocks from the original silo were tossed. Here, we caught a couple of interesting EVPs. Here's the first one. Give it a listen and tell us what you hear. Did you hear help? Could this be the voice of one of the women brutally murdered on the property? Here's the next EVP. And this one was a first for us. Give it a listen. What do you hear? Did you hear pigs oinking? That's what we heard when rolling back the audio. And it's a first for the Sleepless and Suburbia Society. We double-checked with Kyle, and there are no pigs within earshot, or at least no living pigs. We've never caught disembodied farm animals before. I guess there really is a first time for everything. Walking towards the devil's tree felt uneasy. Overhead, the hazy moon was covered by newly forming clouds, hiding what little natural light we had going for us. Standing in front of the tree, lit only by flashlight, Lowe said, Why haven't they torched the thing? While, by the tree, we had no personal experiences, nor did we hear anything besides the occasional buzz of a mosquito in our ears. There was also the scream from yours truly, after a cicada landed in my hair, getting caught, an alien bug attacking my neck as it tried to free itself. The rest of them thought it was hilarious. They're lucky I didn't leave them at the farm. While reviewing evidence by Devil's Tree, we caught two noticeable EVPs. Here's an EVP Ford caught standing inside of the fence. What do you hear? We heard a pissy voice telling us to get out. And Claire found this on her digital recorder. We heard, you know what? Listen first, and then I'll tell you what we heard. Did you hear the sound of knife blades slicing against each other? We decided to try our hand at clearing the space of this toxic energy, beginning with pouring a thick line of salt around the entire perimeter of the fence. We buried a St. Nicholas pendant at each of the four corners, dripping five drops of sage essential oil, five drops of lavender essential oil, and seven drops of frankincense essential oil on the pendant before covering with dirt. As we worked at each of the four corners, we reset the intention for the space, asking that all negative energy stay within the fence and no longer follow out anyone who enters. Wrap up. We touched the tree. All of us. And as of this recap, None of us have been visited by a claw-hand, striped-shirt-wearing creep. Is it that our clearing worked, or maybe we're all a bit too old for his liking? We can't be sure.
Lowe recommended that Kyle pour some kerosene on Devil's Tree and light a match. You can't touch a tree that isn't there. And as of yesterday, Devil's Tree is ash, but the fence will stay in place. With the tree and hopefully the evil presence that possibly inspired a horror franchise gone, and the area cleared, we're comfortable closing Case 117. If you want to check out some of our pictures, listen to EVPs, and stay up to date with everything happening behind the scenes, you can stay connected with us on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Sleepless Suburbia Pod. We'll be back next week with another case. Until then, thanks again for listening to Sleepless in Suburbia. If you enjoy our cases, please make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and make sure to subscribe so you get our new case each week. Until next week, thanks for listening and don't hug any creepy trees. Bye, guys.